laughed last week online. And with you, I heard the laugh. We, we listened to the message last week online, and we'll find out. Uh, Karen and I, my, my wife, Steve's mother, have been here, I think, four times now, and each time it's been our joy to see the work that God is doing in and through. Uh, certainly, Steve and Amy has our own flesh and blood, but the body of Christ as it gathers here each week, and it's just a joy for us to, to be worshiping with you and hopefully now learning alongside of you this morning. I've been given a fairly short leash, so let me, uh, on, the t- on the clock part of this assignment, so let me get into it. By the way, I do have a message on Revelation 19, <laughs> which is really good. <laughs> so you're in a, you're in a series uh, based in Matthew's gospel, Living in the Kingdom, and today we look at the miracles of Jesus, a subject that often gets more jeers than cheers when it comes up for reflection. But it is so important that we understand what's going on in not only today's passage, but in the whole of that section of Jesus' life that would be called the miraculous. It's extremely important because unless we understand them, we'll never fully understand him and what he came to do. Unless we understand the miracles of Jesus and all that's going on in and through them, we'll never fully understand Jesus and what he came to do. Now, the miracles as they unfold in all four of the Gospels are, of course, brilliant, amazing, blessed moments of God. God's intervening power and mercy, obviously, for the benefactor of the miracle. But in every single case, over and over, as they come at us in the narrative, there is so much more going on. Not not the least, the validation of the summary words of the Sermon on the Mount, which you wrapped up last Sunday. I think I'm right in saying that. The very last uh, verses of Matthew Uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, after Jesus has had all of the amazing words of Jesus in what we call the Sermon on the Mount have been unfolded, the final summary words are, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he spoke as one who had authority. And as we turn the page now to Matthew chapter 8, we begin to see just how much authority Jesus has. So let's bow our heads and say a prayer, and then we'll plunge in. Lord, we thank you um, for the good life you've given us, for the blessings that flow our way, for the trials and tribulations that shape and mold and transform our life, for all, for all that we have and are and, and experience day in and out. We give, we give you thanks. But right now we pause to thank you for your word. We live in a world full of words, so many of them false and foolish, that it makes us hungry for true words, authoritative words. Makes us, living in the world that we do, makes us all the more needy of true words, wise words, authoritative words. So please now speak to our hearts and minds as we look into your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be reading from Matthew 8 in, in just a moment, and I think I've seen this happen each time we've been here. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Somebody will come by and, and hand you one so you can read along with me. And if you need to take that Bible home, go ahead. It's yours for uh, the keeping. We just put that on Steve's tab, and it's all taken care of. 
Before we get to the text, let me say again, especially important to talk about this subject of Jesus' miracles because they are, the miracles are often the subject of ridicule, the excuse that enlightened people use to be dismissive of the gospel. And because we, too, often fail to fully understand them. So here's the way I want to frame the challenge of understanding the miracles of Jesus. The only other characters we know of with miraculous powers are those from legend and fiction. Think about that for a moment. Greek mythology is full of characters with supernatural powers. The medieval tales of King Arthur gave us Merlin, the wizard whose wand and spells had amazing power. And in the modern area, we have all these comic book characters who, in my day, could run faster than a speeding bullet and leap tall buildings at a single bound. It's gotten way more crazy and sophisticated than that, I realize, but there you go, Superman. And what I want to show you today is that in the stories of the world, whether ancient or modern, miraculous supernatural powers always work in a very different way than is true in the life of Jesus which tells us a great deal about Jesus and his purposes. So I want to show you now that Jesus' miracles are proof, pointer, and pattern. There's some good old-fashioned preaching right there. Proof, pointer, and pattern. Proof of who Jesus is, pointer to what Jesus is about, and a revelation of the deep pattern at work in the gospel. Proof, pointer, and pattern. So today we look at Matthew 8, verses 5 to 17, remembering that Jesus speaks with a astonishing authority to those who've listened to him preaching. And as soon as we turn the page, he heals a leper in the very first verses of Matthew chapter 8. And we come to our text beginning at verse 5. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Jesus says, I will come and heal him. I make house calls. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word. What a great phrase. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I get org charts. I get how things get done in the world. I understand the process. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel I have found such faith. I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. If you know the Gospels, Jesus often laments the absence or the lack or the paucity of faith. But in this man, so much faith. I will tell you, Jesus says, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In other words, it is not about heritage, lineage, background. It's about personal faith, which is in ample supply in this Greek centurion's life. In that place, the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal regret, and Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. This to the centurion. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. 
at the speaking of the word, the promise made, the thought, the initiative of Jesus to make it so. Then when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. These are just a few of Jesus' miracles from which we have so very much to learn. And the first thing is this. Jesus' miracles are part of the proof of who he is. Part of an explanation, a demonstration of what it meant when people apprehended this is a person of immense authority. Jesus' miracles are proof are part of the proof of who he is. You see it in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken. Jesus' miracles fulfill the Old Testament messianic prophecies and the recurring testimony of the New Testament is those who witnessed his miracles made the connection and believed, trusted, expressed faith. The miracles were regarded as proof of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of the kingdom that he's been announcing. But do you see what's so intriguing about the centurion's perspective? He doesn't seek a miracle in order to believe. He already believes and therefore seeks a miracle. And we're not told exactly how it is that he came to have so much confidence in Jesus, only only that he did. And no one was more amazed than Jesus at this. However, the centurion gained his respect for Jesus. Jesus' miraculous powers were the logical consequence of who the centurion understood him to be, knew him to be. As a soldier, the centurion understood chain of command, power and authority, how stuff gets done in the world. The centurion had his own level of authority, and his word was law in his section of Caesar's army. I tell my men to go, and they go. I tell them uh, what to do, and they do it. You're the king. You only need to speak the word, and it will be so. There's no difficulty accepting that what works in his small world works in a much bigger way in Jesus' limitless sphere of authority. Jesus' limitless sphere of authority. He knows somehow Jesus' sphere of authority is is the whole world whether he understood the notion of a universe, I don't know, but it meant he understood that Jesus wasn't a miracle worker who had to get in the room and wave his wand and say abracadabra or whatever. He knew Jesus had only to think it, to will it, to speak it, and it would be done. Echoes of the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2. God spoke and it was so. The centurion, a Gentile, Mind you, somehow understood that Jesus was Lord, King, Sovereign, the one whose word must be obeyed, and therefore miracles were not a problem for him because he understood who Jesus was. And I point this out, and we need to talk about it, because the New Testament miracles are raised actually as an objection to faith. An excuse people give for not taking the Bible seriously. Only primitive, superstitious, naive people believe in miracles. The enlightened view is something like this. M-C-H. Miracles can't happen. 
and therefore don't. The voice of modern science has led many to become, uh, has, has led us to become supremely confident of our understanding of the laws of nature and how things work. And somewhere in the last century, we just came to the conclusion, I'm speaking culturally now, MCH, miracles can't happen. But there's a problem with that assertion that miracles can't happen. First of all, if you believe in God, in a being who is not only bigger than the natural universe, but who in fact created it, it's, it's, it's a logical contradiction to say miracles can't happen. To believe in God is to admit the possibility, even the probability, of miracles. And second of all, modern science has not only not proven miracles can't happen, it now, in some circles, concedes the possibility. I'm no expert on these things. I'm out of my depth on this. Here in Davis, there'll be people in this room who have forgotten more than I know about some of these things. But quantum mechanics and chaos theory tell us that at the atomic and subatomic level, the so-called Laws of nature we once thought to be immutable are not as neat and tidy as once believed. The universe is much more open and malleable, we're now told, than we once supposed. And scientists worthy of the name now say unlikely things can happen because unlikely things have happened, are happening. And, and the point for today is just this, to say to say that miracles cannot happen is as much and maybe more a leap of faith as saying that they can. It is unwise to dogmatically and categorically declare miracles cannot happen. Or, I'll say it this way, to dismiss Christianity because miracles don't quite fit into your worldview is actually to miss the bigger question the centurion got right, which is, who is Jesus? Who is this authoritative, incredibly, astonishingly authoritative person? Because here's what we learn from the centurion. The truth and wonder of Christianity is revealed in the full portrait of Jesus Christ. Who he is, how he was, how he interacted and behaved. His words and deeds, his strength and gentleness, his integrity and way with people, his honesty and love. All that we learned about in the Sermon on the Mount, and now what we see in his service to people. And whatever we don't know about the centurion's experience, it's fair to surmise that he took it all in. He took it all in. He somehow got in touch with the unfolding story of Jesus' life and ministry, and having taken careful measure of what he witnessed, came to believe this man, to trust this man, to understand to some degree who this man was, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And having established that, how, how, how big of a deal, how big a deal could a miracle be for him? What, I, what I'm saying in this first point is miracles are a proof of Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, but they are far from the only one and probably shouldn't be the decisive one. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus warns us not to put our faith in signs and wonders, for they are not the substance of faith. They're more like the exclamation point on a well-crafted sentence describing the beauty and the uniqueness of Jesus. In other words, the best argument for Christianity is neither a miracle nor an argument. It's Jesus himself. 
And when the centurion approached the question from that perspective, he came away convinced. When the centurion looked at him, all that there was to see and know about him, the words he spoke and the works he did, the most reasonable thing in the world was to ask him to heal his servant. And of course he did. So the miracles are a proof of Jesus' deity, but they are much more than that. Here's our second point. Jesus' miracles are a pointer to what he wants the world to be. A pointer to what he wants the world to be. Think now about how different Jesus' miracles are from those of legend and fiction. If Jesus' miracles were mainly a demonstration of his power, then he would have done the sort of things Merlin did. The sort of things that Superman did. It was all simply about authenticating his identity. Just the more power, the better. You don't believe I'm Merlin? I'll turn you into a toad. You don't believe I'm Superman? Watch me bend this steel girder with my bare hands. That's exactly the sort of thing the devil tempts Jesus to do in Matthew chapter 4. Kind of high-level parlor tricks. Turning a stone into bread, leaping from a tower to set up a dramatic angel rescue. Do you see, Jesus' miracles are never just naked displays of power for the purpose of amazing an audience. They are always redemptive. They deal with human suffering and the terrors of life in a fallen world. Their revelations of Jesus' intent to renew and restore our shattered and broken world. B.B. Warfield, a scholar of the last century, actually a little more than that now, wrote, the number of miracles that Jesus Christ did may be easily underrated. It has been said that, in effect, he banished disease and death from the region in which he worked for three years. If this is exaggeration, it is pardonable exaggeration, for wherever he went, he brought blessing, healing, and help. We greatly underestimate his beneficent activities. He went about feeding the hungry, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, enabling the lame to walk, and raising the dead, as Luke said, going everywhere, doing good. In other words, Jesus' miracles were never just gratuitous displays of power. They were never actually about Jesus. They always pointed to some, something else. Where? Let, let me tease this out for a minute. I think Jesus' miracles point back. A way of thinking about it is to understand that the miracles point back and they point ahead. They point way back and they point way, way ahead. So, so let's think about that for a moment. First, they point back to the way the world was before the, the fall. In the miracles of Jesus, we get a keyhole glimpse into the world God fashioned in the first place, as it were. They point back to a time when there were no little children with swollen bellies dying of starvation. No villages with only foul water to drink. No disasters, no disease, no horrible wars between opposing categories of humanity. When Jesus heals the sick and cleanses lepers and raises the dead, he's pointing back to a creation in which there was no sickness and no disease and no death. These are the great intruders into the life we experience as it is now. 
When he stills a storm, he's pointing back to a time when nature was congenial to life. When we weren't besieged with earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, and drought. He's pointing back to the way the world was before our rebellion disrupted the world. And therefore, miracles are not suspensions of natural law. Rather, they are a restoration of God's design and desire, his original intent. Disharmony, disease, death are all a violation of God's natural order. So Jesus' miracles are actually a revelation of how things are supposed to be. One author writes, Jesus' healings are the only natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonic, and wounded. I think, again, of Steve's illustration of a plane that's oriented to the horizon but it's upside down and Jesus is in a miraculous moment turning it right side up for us to see what that looks like, what that means, how it is. Not only did Jesus' miracles point back, they point forward, way ahead. We don't know how far, but forward. He, he mentions the messianic feast in Verse 11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. All the Old Testament prophets look forward to this, and the book of Revelation tells us that all who love Jesus will be present for the marriage supper of the Lamb. The day is coming when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Oh God, Come quickly. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. What do Jesus' miracles tell us? They tell us a better day is coming. They are proof that a better day is coming. That earth has no sorrows that heaven can't heal. A better day is coming. And meanwhile, they tell us Jesus is no happier with the way things are than you and me. If you are upset about the way things are right now, you have no idea how God feels about it. Or maybe you do. Jesus is no happier with the way things are than you and me, which means the miracles shape our understanding of our purpose and our mission in the world. We need to be as exercised and dissatisfied as Jesus about all the suffering and trouble in the world, looking for ways to be a blessing, the very purpose of the missions team. Feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, providing for those who are truly in need. True Christians never say we only care about the soul and not the body, about the spiritual struggles of others and not their physical suffering as well. C.S. Lewis said Christianity is a fighting religion. What does that mean? Well, it means we're a kind of resistance movement against the way things are. When we see cancer or a slum, we say that ought not to be, and we do what we can. Jesus' interventions in suffering, disease, hunger, and trouble were not only a statement about what God intended in creation, and where the world is ultimately headed, it's a statement of his care and concern for suffering and sufferers now. And it's a word to us. It's a word to us. 
Jesus says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, I think we need to be very careful with that verse, and while I, I will never argue, speak against the possibility that anybody and all of us here might do something miraculous, truly miraculous, on the order of Jesus' kind of miraculous, and I wish we could all become miracle workers, but that verse, that very important verse, is not about going one better than Jesus, about upping the ante on what Jesus did. Not even the apostles did one better than Jesus. What it means is more like do the math. A billion of his followers working off the same agenda for the blessing and benefit of those in great need will all together over time do far more, exceedingly more than he did in his earthly ministry. And so it self-evidently is. The global power of the church for good is immense. Christianity is a fighting religion, not pie in the sky when we die. But let's be very clear. Whenever Jesus does a miracle to alleviate suffering and trouble, he is always concerned for the faith of the person he helps. It's never either or. It's always both and. When the woman who's bleeding is healed and she touches Jesus' robe in Matthew 9, Jesus insists that she be identified so he can speak to her about her soul. The healing of the blind man in John 9 is a physical miracle, straight up. But the whole incident provides a context for Jesus to talk about the more serious affliction of spiritual blindness. And with every healing, the, question, the questions come, do you believe? Where is your faith? Or the statement, your faith has made you whole. Why does Jesus say such things? Well, because the greatest thing we can do for anyone is not heal their body, as wonderful as that is and would be. Our bodies, which are passing away and will perish soon enough, the greatest thing we do for someone is help them secure a permanent, eternal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is every person's greatest, ultimate need. So when Jesus says your sins are forgiven and not rise up and walk, he's pointing to the one thing we most need. Bad as suffering is and as committed as God is to ending it, suffering is not our primary problem. Somebody has said an ounce of sin can destroy you more than ten tons of suffering. Our greatest need is to be forgiven and reconciled to God. And when our heart is awash in his love, we learn we can bear anything. These are the realities to which Jesus' miracles are always pointing. Now, before we wrap up, don't miss this. Jesus always ministers in word and deed. Always in word and deed, word and deed, both together. His, all, his work is always two-dimensional. He calls people to repent and believe, and he goes about doing good. And do you see how that very clearly defines our purpose, our mission as a church? On the one hand, we respectfully call our neighbors to Jesus to consider his claims, to understand who he is, to take him seriously, and to learn what joy and freedom could be theirs if they would repent and believe. But we must also do all we can to alleviate suffering, loving 
our neighbors in tangible ways, whether they believe as we do or not, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus' miracles give us this radical agenda for serving people in need at the same time we're seeking to help them repent and believe. Jesus' miracles are proof, pointer, and finally, they reveal the deep pattern of how he saves us. And this is the good part. If that wasn't good, this is the good part. Notice one more time how different are the miracles of Jesus from those of legend and fiction. When Merlin works his magic, it's, it's always a display of power and strength, never weakness and vulnerability. Merlin waves his wand to protect and to assert himself, to win, to conquer, to kill a dragon, or defeat an enemy. Superman's superpower never makes him vulnerable. It makes him invincible. You can't spear Superman. You can't nail Superman. You can't crush or kill Superman. I know, I know all about the kryptonite thing, but it, it helps make them create tension in the narrative and all of that. But Superman always wins because he's Superman. And the point of all that is how different is Jesus? The great miracle that made all the others possible was the incarnation, God coming down from heaven as the most vulnerable and defenseless of creatures, an infant child. Again, when a bleeding woman touches Jesus' robe, a story told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what happens? Jesus says, who touched me? Peter says, everyone. There was just a crowd of people pressing in on them. But Jesus knows someone was healed on contact. And how does he know? He says to Peter, power has gone out for me. Power has left me. His strength went to her as her weakness came to him. And this is the pattern. This is how radically different is the pattern of the gospel and of the miraculous in Jesus' life. Pay close attention now. When Jesus did a miracle, what almost always happened next. The very next thing you read is his enemies begin plotting to oppose and suppress his ministry. They determined in their hearts, mainly in the wake of his miracles, to kill him. And it all comes to a head with Lazarus, right? When Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, his enemies determined to put Jesus in a tomb. The only way Jesus could get Lazarus out of the grave was to go into the grave himself. This is the beauty and the mystery and the wonder of the gospel, friends. God becoming vulnerable to sin and death so that we could become invulnerable to sin and death. Jesus' supernatural power not only did not protect him, it made him, it made him whippable. It made him spearable. It made him nailable. It made him killable. Why does it work like this? Well, we're told in the last verse, he took up our infirmities and bore our afflictions. He bore these things in his own body. He bore our judgment. He bore the penalty for our sin. He bore the wrath of God. He bore, he endured the experience of being forsaken by his own heavenly Father that we might be embraced by him. He bore the shame and humiliation that our rebellion deserved. He bore the kryptonite, if you like, and lost the superpower that we might live. 
He was crucified in weakness that by God's power we might live. So do you see, no matter how respectable you or I may appear to be, there is enough darkness, enough sin, enough selfishness and evil in all of us to merit God's judgment. If Jesus had come to bring judgment rather than to bear it, none of us would be sitting here right now. He came to bear our judgment. Every ounce of righteous judgment he bore on the cross in our place. He bore the judgment so that one day, when he comes again to make all things new and end all evil, he can do so without ending us. Do you see that? He made a way to end all evil without ending us. So the miracles of Jesus show this deep pattern of God's redemptive work. Jesus doesn't power up and overcome like some character from Greek mythology or a Marvel comic book. He saves us by becoming vulnerable, susceptible, and powerless. This is the gospel pattern, and this is how it works in us. The only way we get God's salvation is becoming, by becoming weak ourselves. Vulnerable ourselves, humbling ourselves, admitting our need for a Savior and Lord. And do you also see, this is how we love others and serve the world. This is the way of Jesus. We become vulnerable. We voluntarily give our strength away. We become poorer, if you will, to help others. One quick illustration, and then we'll close and head for communion. Rodney Snarka, Starka, a sociologist turned his historian, has written some masterful books on the large influence of the relatively small in number early church. In the rise of Christianity, he points out that when the plagues swept through the cities of the Greco-Roman Empire, death was everywhere. Realizing Population-wise, the world was much, 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 much smaller 2,000-plus years ago. Listen to this. Up to 5,000 people died each day in Rome when the plague was upon the city. And here's one eyewitness account. The doctors were quite incapable of treating the disease. The people were so afraid of catching it from one another that they stopped visiting each other. Thousands died alone with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished from neglect. The bodies were heaped one on top of another, and half-dead creatures staggered through the streets seeking solace. The catastrophe was so great that men became indifferent to every rule of morality. Many pushed sufferers away, even their dearest, often throwing them into the road before they were dead, hoping to avert contagion. This was true everywhere, except where the Christians lived. While nearly every person of means fled the city, the Christians actually voluntarily stayed, not only caring for their own, but others as well. And here's what happened. Most of our brothers and sisters showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of others, heedless of danger. They took charge of the sick, attending to all their needs, ministering to them in Christ, drawing to themselves the sickness of their neighbors, and cheerfully accepting their pains. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, a number of our elders. Many, in nursing and caring for others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. 
And you know the answer, but the narrative begs the question, where did the early Christians get the idea to behave this way? Where, where did they find the courage to do this? Even if they believed it was right, they needed the courage as well. What would empower people to become that vulnerable for the sake of others? Well, it's plain to see, is it not? The early Christians died for others because Christ died for them. The early Christians made themselves vulnerable because their God had become vulnerable for them. The early Christians gave away their time and stuff to others in need because their God gave up the most precious thing in the universe for them, His one and only Son. What they did was follow the pattern of Jesus, and it changed history. It gave the early church credibility and respect, even among those who despised their doctrine. In the stories of the world, miraculous supernatural moments are about the strong getting stronger, the invulnerable becoming invincible, overcoming through strength and power. Only in the gospel do we meet the God who abandons power, who lays down his life, who humbles himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, crucified in weakness, that by his power we might live. This is what we learn from the miracles of Jesus. And you'll see it over and over again as you move your way through Matthew. Let me ask you to bow your heads for a moment of reflection and prayer and let me help us sort of transition in the direction of communion. So I'm an old preacher. Here's how the old preachers say it. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Have you discovered what the centurion had? That Jesus is Lord. The one who is rescuing, recovering, and renewing all things in the most unexpected way. Not by bringing judgment, but by bearing it. Bearing our sins and their consequences for us. Submitting to judgment so that we might be exonerated, acquitted, liberated, set free to love and serve and give in the very way that Jesus did. This is what we remember now as we come to the table as we take up the bread and the cup, as we share in communion together. We honor, we respect, we remember, and we are reinvigorated with the truth and the power of the gospel as we do this. Lord, now help us to see and be seized by the beauty of who you are and what you've done. And may that more and more shape who we are and what we do in this world that cries out, cries out for greater works than even Jesus did. Because you humbled yourself for us, we humble ourselves before you and for you. Because you became vulnerable for our sake, we commit to being vulnerable for the sake of your mission in this world for the sake of others. Remind us now of the deep truth of the gospel as we eat the bread and drink from the cup. In Jesus' name, 